Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work and to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychemus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, so that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you get what Jesus said there, you're going to well understand what Paul is telling Titus and teaching us in today's reading. We've had a very quick journey through Titus. There's only three books in, sorry, three chapters in Titus, and they're all quite short. And so we've been covering a chapter a week, and we're finishing up today. 
And what struck me in today's reading is there's two very distinct contrasts. The first contrast is the contrast between a believer and an unbeliever. It's the contrast between a Christian and a non-Christian. We are so different to one another. If we're not, we should be. Uh, mind you, um, it is also the contrast between what we ourselves once were compared to what we have now become in Christ. So that's the first contrast. The second contrast is, is found within the church gathering itself. It's the contrast between the godly and the heretic. And it actually does use that word, that one of the Greek words in there is actually sounds like heretic. That's um, what he's actually talking about. It's the contrast between, it's those who live in godliness and, and their good works are described as excellent and profitable, whereas the device of heretic uh, who rejects the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, and they follow man-made religious rules and regulations, these are described as unprofitable and worthless. Right? So there's two very strong contrasts, and we're going to see how they play out. Now, over the years, as we've been studying the scriptures, a message that keeps coming through, and it comes through loud and clear, and it's something that we ourselves experience, it's about the special relationship that exists between Christians. Right? As disciples of Jesus, we love one another. We care for one another. When one is in need, we give to our brothers and sisters in Christ what they need. We give food, we give clothing, we give practical acts of service, we give fellowship, we give friendship, we give love. As, as the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, the bond that makes us one is, it's the bond, it's a family bond, but it's a spiritual bond as well, and, and it's incomparable to any other relationship. But having said that, how, as Christians, should we relate to unbelievers? Right? The scriptures are very clear about how Christians should be relating to Christians. Really close. But how should we relate to unbelievers? Because let's face it, um, and what I'm about to say is a generalisation. It's not true in every case. But for a Christian... Many non-Christians might be pretty offensive sorts of people and they might be quite difficult for us to live with. Uh, in verse 3, Paul describes how we once were before we saved, right? We were saved. This is a ca what characterises an unbeliever. And don't forget, this is what we once were. And he lists some not very nice traits. He says, we were foolish. Now, that doesn't mean that we couldn't pass exams. A um, person can be very good at passing exams, but be very foolish. He's talking about being spiritually foolish, um, not having any spiritual understanding. He says they're disobedient. Disobedient to God, disobedient to his law, disobedient to parents. Led astray, slaves to passions slaves to pleasures. Uh, basically, he's talking about 
pursuing our natural base desires that we have in life and making that our chief purpose. He says, and the unbelievers pass their days in malice, in envy, being hated by others and hating one another. It sort of sounds a bit like a soap opera, doesn't it? Yeah, I just see, you see these soap operas and, oh, so-and-so's against so-and-so and blah, 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 blah. It's all horrible. It, what it is, is it, it is a picture of the broken world in which we live. It's awful. But don't forget, that is what we once were. So there's no room for pride here. But here's the thing. It, it doesn't seem so awful when you're the one who's caught up in it yourself. You see, if I'm the same as everyone else around me, it just seems like normal life. It's just part of the dog-eat-dog world that we live in, focused on pleasures, focused on passions, totally oblivious to God, holding deep-seated resentment or animosity towards others. It's just normal for many in their life. But when you've been set free from that, you look at that and go, yuck, yuck. And so I thank God for verse 4 which says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. And that's why, that's what we once were. We're not that way anymore. As the children of God, by the grace of God, we have been saved. By his Holy Spirit, we've been washed We've been baptised, but the blood of Jesus has washed our sin away. We've been regenerated. That's talking about rebirth and new beginning. We've been renewed. He's poured his Holy Spirit upon us, making it possible for us to no longer live by the flesh, but making us able to live by the Spirit of God himself. And this is why... When you become a Christian, all of a sudden, what once seemed normal and still is normal for most people in this world, we look at what we once were and we go, yuck, I, I don't want to be like that anymore. I, I don't want to be involved in that stuff anymore. In fact, I'm not even comfortable being around my old friends when they get up to what I used to get up to. Didn't used to bother me, but now I just don't like it anymore. So from then on, how do we relate to unbelievers? And this is something that every Christian has to come to terms with and, 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 and know how, how am I going to relate to unbelievers? Do we cut ourselves off from them? Many do. Do we condemn them and judge them? Many do. Do we needle them and, and antagonise them and watch them suffer in their brokenness? Sadly, some who call themselves Christians get some kind of perverse enjoyment out of seeing that. But as disciples of Jesus, there's seven things here that, that Paul says that we need to be reminded to do. And every one of these seven things is about how we relate to unbelievers. The first thing he says is be submissive 
to the rulers and authorities. Now, I don't don't want to burst anybody's bubble here, but most of the time, our rulers and authorities are ungodly. Most of them are unbelievers. Um, And I sort of suspect that within the hallowed halls of our parliaments, you'll probably find some of the most ungodly people around. People who are striving for, to climb the tree and, and find themselves um, their level of authority that they want. Not in our local council, of course, Alex. <laughs> but the thing is, it is the ungodly who do not submit to the authorities. In Romans chapter 13, we're told that whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now, of course, there there is limits to this, and we've talked about this before. If the authorities ever order you to do something that, that goes against God's law, if the authorities ever order you to do something that would be causing you to sin, do not do what they tell you to do. There comes a time where we have to obey God instead of the authorities. But in all other matters, if they are not commanding us to do something which is sinful, the command of God is that we are to be submissive to rulers and authorities, even though they're not godly. We're reminded to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. What? Do good works for for unbelievers? to speak evil of no one. Now, he's not saying that we shouldn't correct or rebuke. Um, Paul does that often. In fact, he's already done it in this letter and he's told Titus to do the same. Basically, what he's saying is, is don't repay evil for evil, right? If pretty much within this world, if somebody says something really bad to me, then that sort of then becomes a license for me to retaliate and say something really bad to them. Not if I'm a Christian. Not if I'm living by the Holy Spirit. We're to speak evil of no one. We're reminded to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. But, but what if they're not courteous to me? Well, that doesn't matter. See, this isn't a partial courtesy. Um, a couple a couple of times in, in these readings that I've used today, um, he uses the word perfect. Now, the problem is for us, when we hear the perfect, the word perfect, we go, oh, well, that sort of lets me off the hook because no one's perfect. No one's perfect. But the way that the word perfect is being used here, it's about being complete and mature. And so we are to be fully courteous to everyone. But here's the thing. If the unbelieving are generally hateful and spiteful and malicious, uh, if you've ever worked in a large workplace, uh, and probably even in some smaller workplaces, you, you, you see this coming through all the time. You might start a job somewhere and, and you think, oh, gee, they, they all get on pretty well, this mob, but then within a matter of weeks, you realise that so-and-so hates so-and-so and you know that so-and-so is trying to climb over the top of someone and else and, and people are saying conniving words about one another. 
It's awful. Has anyone ever experienced that in a workplace? Some of you have. They can be against God, against Christians, and ignorant of spiritual things. Now, it's really hard to show the sort of love that Paul's talking about here to an unbeliever. It's really hard to be gentle when someone is harsh towards me. It's really hard to be loving to someone who hates you. It's really hard to be kind to somebody who's doing their best to pull you down. It's really hard to be a peacemaker when the whole place is at war and they're warring against you too. It's really hard to be courteous when people are rude to you. It's really hard to submit to the authorities because they're not particularly godly. It's really hard. It might even grate on us. And we might have the feeling, no, no, I'm not going to be nice to them. Um, I'm not going to be nice to them until they're a little bit nicer to me. I'm not going to be loving and gentle and kind to them until they learn their lesson. That's why I began with those words of Jesus about loving our enemies. Because this is exactly what Paul is teaching us here. Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect. And in this sense, it's about being complete and mature, spiritually mature. How do we mature? Because it says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us here. When he gave that horrible list of that, that description of what the unbelieving were like, he did it in the context of that is what you once were. That is what we once were. But here's the thing. It's not because that's the way we once were, therefore we should be loving and gentle and courteous and kind to unbelievers who are still like that. That's not what he's telling us here. It's not because, you know what, I used to be that bad, so, you know, they've got an excuse. That's not what he's telling us either. It's not about what we once were. It's about what we now are. We are not like that anymore. God saved us and he totally transformed us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And why did he do that? Well, verse 7 tells us why. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, we might read that and go, okay, heirs, he's talking about inheritance. Okay, he did, us, he did this so that we can have eternal life. And, and yes, this is true. But there's something special about that word heirs. True heirs express their father's character. What is our heavenly father's character? Jesus explained it. He said, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Right? Talking of heirs, talking of sons. And what's God's character? 
He makes the, run sh- the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. And then in verse 48, he says, Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there, in this context, Jesus is talking about loving our enemies. He's talking about doing good for people who hate us. How does Paul describe our heavenly Father's character? Well, basically, he's telling us that while we were despicable and godless and hateful and envious, what did God do for us? He showed to us his goodness and his loving kindness. That's what God is like. God loves the despicable and godless and hateful and envious and his love and his loving and kind towards them. He did that for us. You with me? Our heavenly Father loved us when we were the picture of sin and he is merciful and kind toward us. We had no righteousness of our own. What he did He did because of his own mercy. And so not because of what we once were, but because of what we now are and who we now are. We have been transformed to become more like our Heavenly Father. True heirs reflect their Father's character. And so many unbelievers may well be horrible, despicable people. But we love them anyway. And we do good for them. And we're kind and courteous toward them because this is demonstrating the very character of the goodness of God. So in verse 8 he says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. Now what is this, the saying that he's talking about? Verses 1 to 7, all of what we've just been talking about. Um, Because of this, insist that all believers be like their heavenly Father. So therefore, insist that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Righto? So we've seen the first contrast. The contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. The contrast between what we once were and who we now are. It's the contrast between having a worldly character and the, having, being an heir of God who has the very character of God himself. And by his Holy Spirit and his character becoming our character. That's the first contrast. Now we come to the second contrast. Being heirs of the Father and doing good works, even for those who hate us, is excellent and profitable. But those within the church who fixate on foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, all of that is unprofitable and worthless. Now, let's put some legs on that. In Crete, where Titus was, and so this letter was sent to Titus in Crete, 
Uh, the circumcision party or the Judaizers um, were trying to force these Gentile Christians into the Jewish religious mold, right? And so rather than focus on the grace and the mercy of God, they got tangled up in all of these side issues, which were really man-made controversial teachings that did nothing at all for godliness and all it was serving to do was cause arguments within the church. It was tearing the church apart. And we still see similar stuff coming through in the church today. Some people get no greater delight in the church than to bring something completely useless and thoroughly controversial into the church as this is what we now believe. And you know what? The only thing that does is it serves to rip a church apart. Recently, we had the whole pandemic thing, and some folk made the issue of whether one wears a mask or not as an issue of faith. And, and if you don't wear a mask, if you wear a mask to church, then, oh, you're breaking God's law. And it's, it's just, it's a foolish controversy. It's not a scriptural thing. Some will insist that the only version of the Bible that we should ever read is is that the King James Version of 1611, or, or choose whichever version of the Bible you want to have. Um, and, and then they go on to say, and everything else is blasphemy. It's a foolish controversy. What do they think that Jesus spoke in English? He didn't. Everything that we read is a translation. Why would one produced in 1611 be better than one produced today? There are good versions, there are bad versions, but there are many good ones many good ones, and many that are much easier to understand than something in 1611 English. Some will insist that unless you have a particular spiritual gift, then you're a deficient Christian. It's a foolish controversy. Some will be deceived by Bible codes and false prophecies and teach, teach these things as fact when it's tearing people away from the simple truth of the Word of God. It's all controversial nonsense. Now, that's the sort of stuff that, that we might see here, which we could describe as being unprofitable and worthless. And Paul will not allow that sort of division to continue within the church. If anyone stirs up that sort of division, he says two warnings is what they get. Warn them once, warn them a second time, and then if after that they are still dividing the church with their controversies, they're not welcome in the church anymore. That's a, that's a hard thing to say. You know, as Christians, we don't like to think that we would ever excommunicate someone. And let's be clear, that's what he's talking about, is excommunicating someone. But what Paul is saying is, is the truth and unity in the church is so important that if after two warnings somebody is still trying to tear all that apart, then do not allow them in the church anymore. He says, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He's been warned, and yet by his own choice, he's continued to divide the church with the controversies. He has to be gone. So that is pretty much the letter to Titus. Finishes off with a few final instructions and greetings, but then he goes back to the main topic again with verse 14. He says, 
and let people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. When it comes to helping others, where do we draw the line? Remember Jesus said, we'll always have the poor. Where do we draw the line when it comes to helping others? Some would say, oh, don't do any good works. Well, Paul would call that unfruitful, unfruitful. As Christians, we are to be doing good works, and not only for Christians, but also for the ungodly. Some would say there is no line to draw. We just keep giving and giving and giving until we've got nothing left. It's sort of almost like some kind of equalisation thing. But there is a line. He says here that we're to help those who are in urgent need. It's about stepping up to help out cases that have a very necessary need. Now, I have to make decisions like this all the time. Um, so, for example, when has anyone noticed the price of fuel has gone up? Has anyone noticed that? Yeah. <laughs> the, the strange thing is... When the price of fuel suddenly skyrocketed, um, there are a number of people in the community who go, oh, therefore the pastor will fill my car up for me. Of course, that's the logical conclusion, isn't it? That, that if, if I don't have enough money to, to fill the tank on my car, then the pastor will do it for me. Now, the thing is, I don't consider that an urgent need. You can always stay where you are. Um, but... If I find a, if a family doesn't have any food for dinner at night, I, I always keep loaves of bread in the freezer and and spreads and stuff and and cheese and whatnot in the in the fridge that I can I can give them to help them out. Devoting ourselves to good works it, it is a matter of helping cases who are in urgent need and not turning a blind eye to them. So how am I going to finish up? As I work through this, something that dawned on me is, is perhaps, I, I suspect the biggest challenge for many of us is we are more godly than what we once were, but our godliness has a ways to go. Would you generally agree with that? We are more godly than we once were, but our godliness still has a ways to go. So, in the context of what we've been just reading now, I used to do evil. I used to be a part of evil, and it didn't bother me in the least. But then the mercy of God came to work in my life, and he saved me, and he renewed me. And so now... Stuff that didn't used to bother me, I don't like it anymore. I've become godly enough to hate what is evil and not want to be associated with it. And so the renewal and the regeneration of God for many of us, it gets to that stage. But that's where some of us stop. We need to realise we're not spiritually mature yet. And so if I don't love 
And if I am not kind towards unbelievers and do good work, and I don't do good works for them because I find them vile, that's telling me that, that there's still need for more renewal and more regeneration to happen to me yet. If I am to become like my Heavenly Father, I will love the sinner. I will be kind and respectful and helpful to the sinner, even though they sin. And even if they are hateful towards me, because that's what it means to be godly. Verse 15. All who are with me send their greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so merciful to us. It is while we were still sinners, it is while we were vile and despicable people that, that you showed your loving kindness and Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And we thank you. We know that it wasn't through our own righteousness because there was none of that. But we thank you that, that you have regenerated us and made us holy in your sight. Lord, we ask that you would continue to renew us by your spirit, that you would complete us, that you would perfect us, that you would make us true heirs of the Father, that your character would become our character, that you would help us to, to love and to be kind to those who are not loving and kind toward us. Help us to do good even to those who do evil to us because this is where your character is displayed. In Jesus' name, amen.